Hello and welcome to the Rethinking ADHD podcast. My name is Simon Mundy and I am your host. It is clear that ADHD is being talked about much more than ever before. We're hearing about increasing numbers of celebrities and high profile people being diagnosed, often well into adulthood. But despite the increase in awareness of ADHD, there are still significant misconceptions about what it is, as well as the impact it can have on people's lives and what you can do about it. So this series aims to explore what ADHD is and how it presents itself, challenge some myths and misconceptions about it and outline ways to manage the condition and thrive with it. I'll be speaking to athletes, entrepreneurs, authors, doctors and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist to hear about their experiences and find out how they learn to flourish while living with ADHD. I'm hosting this series on behalf of QB Tech, who are the leading provider of FDA-cleared objective ADHD tests. In this episode, I'm talking to one of England's best-known sports stars of the last decade, James Haskell. Now, James played rugby for England on 77 occasions and was named Player of the Series as England beat Australia in their own backyard in 2016. Since retiring in 2019, James has gone on to host one of the biggest podcasts in Britain called The Good, The Bad and The Rugby. He's also a successful DJ and reality TV star featuring in the hugely popular TV show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, alongside the likes of former Olympic champion Caitlyn Jenner. James was diagnosed with ADHD as a child and he says it played a key role in the success that he's gone on to achieve on the pitch and off it. After my conversation with James, I'm speaking to an ADHD doctor about some of the topics and themes that came up. Dr. Wiley shares some fascinating insights and reflections on James's story, as well as tips and tools that are valuable to anyone learning about living with ADHD. And just a heads up, this episode does contain some mild adult language. James Haskell, always a pleasure to see you. How are you? I'm all right, actually. I'm a bit, a bit sore. I did some jiu-jitsu this morning, and I haven't done it for a while. So I was tooled up a bit this morning, but it's nice to be back. I feel better for doing something physical, you know? So it's a little humbling doing something like that, which is obviously always a good thing. A lot of people say that about martial arts. Now, James, you're a busy boy. You are, well, obviously a very successful former England rugby player, top podcaster, multiple author, reality TV star. You've yeah. got a lot going on, haven't you? I have. Everything I do is centred around performing. The podcast, the afternoon speaking, the corporate work, the music, the DJing, it's all performing. Within that, I'm very, you know, I DJ probably three times a week, a lot of travel with that, and that's my favourite thing to do. I'm making a lot of music at the moment. I've got four records coming out, and I've got some different pieces going on. But I don't have anything that's kind of yet where you make money, where you sleep. And I, and, I, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. So I'm doing some stuff with the fitness app. and There's a few things ticking away, but obviously I don't, DJing is the one avenue you can keep doing. You know, Carl Cox is 61. He's still rocking it. He's still the best DJ in the world. So I've got 30 more years to, to keep chipping away at it, but I um, I need to find something else to, to, to pay the bills, you know? I'm not sure you need to add to that list, quite honestly, James. I think you're very self-aware to acknowledge that you're a performer and you really thrive off that because I think it takes some character to kind of acknowledge and admit that to yourself, doesn't it? A lot of people would deny that. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I think... For all my faults, I think one's self-awareness is very important. And the one lesson I try to always carry forward is is you can lie to everyone else, but you can't lie to yourself. And uh, we're very good at doing that as, as as people. I think the idea is that when you're going to bed at night, and I, sort of the honesty window, I call it, you go to bed at night, your phone's off, 
you just turn the lights off and you're, you're laying there in the dark in your voice are you dealing with your mental health are you successful are you working on your relationship are you working on yourself are you happy are you happy with what you see in the mirror all the things that those moments come to kind of come to fruition and i try to check in with myself all the time and go is the stuff i'm talking about myself right is the stuff that i offer other people right because i do a lot of talks on mental health and performance i've written you know my last book was approach without caution which is about all of this performance stuff and i was like you know, I had a moment the other day where I'd been talking to people about taking care of their mental health and I was going through some 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 stuff and I was like, you know, new dad, I was very busy and I was probably doing too much and stuff at home was tricky, et cetera. And I, um, and I hadn't spoken to a therapist for three months. I was like, well, go and do it. So you've got a lot on and you obviously hit huge heights as a rugby player. You're doing wonderful things since retiring too. So you're really making the most of things, passionate about mental health as well. And I want to just go back though to a formative moment in your life, which was when you were, I think, eight or nine, when you yeah. were diagnosed with ADHD. So can you just tell me what you were like and what that experience was like at that age from what you can remember? Um, well, my childhood was very much spent like <laughs> as a bit of a blur sort of not really that self-aware, not really aware of the world, playing outside, playing every bit of sport. I do remember throughout my childhood being taken to see various people, therapists, and, you know, trying to do different things. And I remember they took me to see one particular person that did, um, had these little paint brushes that you used to paint, or no, brush, like top of your lip, on your cheek, around it. And I, I must have been nervous. Sister. I don't know what it was type of therapy, but they were a legitimate person. They used to, you know, my mum used to do it every night for bed, different parts of these little paintbrushes, little purple, but two, it must have been to calm me down or to do something, you know, and I think every school report was, you know, could try harder, obviously intelligent. My parents found that I couldn't sit still. My dad used to set the alarm on the oven because if I kept getting up from the table, he'd be like, well, you know, you set the alarm, it's a time, but you know, to be asked to sit still for five minutes was impossible. And then obviously every time I got up, you'd add another five minutes to it. So, you know, 15 minutes, it seems like nothing, but for a kid that couldn't sit still and just always trying to, to get me to, to sit down and behave and not be disruptive. And I was big and I was clumsy. And I, I was at uh, Papawick school and I remember, I think I'd been suspended or something had happened or, and I think after that, they took me to see a therapist and this um, it's a nice Indian lady we went in there and they gave me a pen and paper and I was just drawing while my mum was sort of telling her basically all the things that were sort of, that I was wrong, what was wrong with me or whatever it was. And she, we did a session, we talked and talked and talked and she went, look, I think you've got ADD. So I was like, I don't know what the hell that is. Um, and she said, well, it's actually part of the family, ADHD. I don't think you've got the hyperactive disorder because the fact you can sit down and write and do stuff and everything else like that and you do work and you can apply yourself and you play sport or whatever, you don't have hyperactive but you've got attention deficit disorder right um and we recommend putting you on ritalin and this is what you this is what you have to do and i and i took the medication from must have been 10 or 9 to 16 no uh, 17 it was basically and it was i took it every day and my house master used to come in the morning and put it on my bedside table and i used to get up from the no and i would just take it and uh i don't remember having it uh, any sort of super profound effect on me other than it sort of taught me to apply myself. I felt just able to sit down and concentrate. And then off the back of that, I then developed, I think through trying to train for rugby and having disappointment and, and everything else, a really, really good work ethic. I sort of saw through the rugby training aspect that if I applied myself while others weren't, 
I was getting results and that taught me to knuckle down. And then with the work stuff, I, I kind of enjoyed sitting down and, and working. And I don't know whether that was some profound effect it had or whether I always had it in me. Um, and then I had to play, I got selected for England under 18s to play against Scotland and the doctor, team doctor asked me, are you on any medication? I went Ritalin and he went and like started to panic and, and like just disappeared from the room and came back. I was like, right, we're going to have to pull you out of this game. And I said, why is that? Because he goes, it's a, it's a controlled substance. You can't be taking this. You need to stop taking it. And then actually, ironically, because I had to pull out that game and nobody wanted, and I think because I was probably quite private about it at the time, they didn't announce anything. And then everyone thought that I'd been taking steroids and that's why I've been pulled out of the game because I was, because I trained. Yeah. You were a big boy. I was a big boy because I trained with a personal trainer for, for four years, three years. Because I got pulled out, people then started this narrative that I'd taken steroids and that I was, you know, on whatever. But it was because I was on written. I then, two weeks later, then played against Wales in my first game and captained the, captained the side. And that was all down to the fact that I was... Um, had stopped taking Ritalin, and then I never took anything since. Um, and, I, and I think maybe the work had been done and I sort of learned to concentrate, really. Do you think then, in terms of that learning to apply yourself, learning to work hard, learning to focus, <laughs> can you trace that then, do you think, back to that diagnosis? So was that really fundamental in, in what you've gone on to achieve, do you think? This is the thing. This is the part I, I struggle with because... I didn't meet anyone for for 20 years who told me about ADHD. I'd, ne- I'd never heard anybody mention it. I never talked about it. It never came up. It was never a conversation point. No one ever went, I've got it. It never happened. And I would say in the last two years, I meet someone every day who pops up and either has self-diagnosed them or goes, I'm a bit scatty. I can't remember anything. I can't concentrate. I'm all over the place and I've got ADHD. I'm like, you haven't. I do understand that. And I think that a lot of people have spoken about, particularly, for example, in America, you know, there may be a case of overdiagnosis. Yes. But at the same time, if the testing's done properly. Yeah. Um, and but someone. How many people are tested? How many people? I, I, I mean, you might. Yeah, I think you said you got tested properly. I don't think. Like TikTok. Apparently, there's something on TikTok where everyone's now saying they've got ADHD. I don't know what it is. Someone, someone said that to me the other day. They said there's some self-diagnosis and there's a lot of influencers saying that this is this and this. And, that, and that's how people are doing I haven't met anybody who, who's told me they've got it, who's gone and seen someone and been diagnosed. Yeah, no, I do understand what you're saying. And I think this is why diagnosis is so important, right? Proper diagnosis. So I've done the objective test with Cubitech and had to sit in a room, dark room for an hour. It was seeing all sorts of stuff that I wasn't even aware of. Yeah. And I, w- I didn't go looking for that. And it was fascinating to get these results back. And then it helped sort of me to make sense of things. So... I do think first point is what you say there about how important diagnosis is properly, not self-diagnosis, proper diagnosis. So that's point number one. And then number two, in some ways, it's just understanding the traits that we have, just a bit more understanding how your brain works. And then, you know, as you've done, putting things in place to make it work best for you and therefore having that bit of knowledge when correctly diagnosed can be really valuable i mean do you I, agree with that i could 100 100 percent. i think add or adhd whatever it's been my superpower my mind works at a million miles now i retain information really well i'm able to i've written seven books re- released eight tracks dj uh you know run a podcast write books write speeches do, do all the time work at, you know sitting quietly and, and focus and work but it also gets me into trouble. I've got a bit of a destructive personality. I like, like you know, I, I speak before I think before I speak. My mind works really quickly. So I saw a, thera- uh, uh, a sports therapist, a psychologist, 
from 17 and I've got a therapy session tomorrow with with somebody else. I've worked on my mind the whole time. I know how powerful it is, how much it can control everything you do from relationships to success to sleep. Nobody does anything with it. So if you get ADHD diagnosis, you have to work on that every single day. You can't just sit around and go, I've got ADHD. I'm going to say whatever I want and I'm late and I'm scatty. No, you now know, go and work on it. You know, I think servicing your mind and servicing your brain is so important, putting that work yeah. and putting that time in. And I think whatever you've got, get a proper diagnosis. But that's the start, yeah. not even the beginning. It's the start of how do you manage it, manage it you know? I completely agree. Um, actually, I wanted to put this to you. I think that's a really valuable point because I've spoken about this on my podcast a lot. There's obviously that motto that people talk about, it's okay not to be okay, which is obviously totally valid and fine. But mm-hmm. I also think it's worth moving that on in some cases to it's okay to do the work to be okay which is what you're saying isn't it yeah it's okay to not okay to be okay for like an hour you should always show emotion so I think you should be okay going I'm having a bit of a nightmare um I'm unhappy I've got this but then change it talk without action is utterly pointless you always have to do that's why we're talking about off-air self-help books you don't want to ever be motivated because motivation comes and goes like the weather. What you want to do is build self, um, mental resilience. So what do I, what tools do I use to, to be successful? Well, first of all, some days I, I you know, I, I wake up feeling great. So, you know, positivity. Some days I wake up feeling bad and I go, right, what can I dig in to get up and do this? Well, I look at other people, jealousy. Jealousy is a great uh, 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 factor, you know, comp, comp, competition. Next thing, negativity. Forget positivity, negativity, using other people's doubt, other people's uh, perceived doubt, uh, things people have said to you, use them as a tool. Um, you know, a- a- aspiration, looking at someone and going, I want that, how do I go and do it? These are what builders in. I've fallen down, I need to get up. And so with all this stuff, it's just about m- taking action and moving forward. So when you read a self-help book, do what it says in the book. You have to go back every single day. So therapy with me, I've done it every you know, sort of almost every week from 17 to, to, to whatever. And it wasn't because I had some profound mental health problems. I went to see him, to see her to to improve performance. And when I came, pulled back the layers, I found out I was massively insecure, uh, lacked self-confidence in my in my rugby, couldn't deal with criticism. Um, and, you know, if I was, if I made mistakes, um, was really scared about making more mistakes, I played with inside myself and didn't address what I should do. I then had to get a set of tools from her that every time I have a doubt now, problems now, because your problems never go away. That's the, the one thing as well. It's how quickly you get back on track by using the tool. So so I think you should always exhibit your emotion. You should always go sad, feel sad, but then you have to get on with it and you have to put work in and don't become defined by it. You know, I had very critical coaches. I had a very critical father. He loved me, but very critical. I couldn't deal with criticism. I was very much a confidence man. I needed an arm around me. I needed people to... Um, to tell me, you know, you've done this and this well, this this wrong, and this is how to go and go and improve it. But I only learned that by looking into how I learned, and then going to see a therapist. It was about tools, for example, utilizing music to change state. So where focus goes, energy flows. So if you are having a meltdown and you are able to change your um, focus onto something else, so utilizing a song that emotively um, sort of reacts or you react to, you can change your focus. Like if I was having an argument with my wife, and or I can make one of us laugh. In that period, without kicking off, we'll stop arguing because you've changed focus, you've changed state. So I think you need to go and find the tools because if you had the tools, you would fix yourself and, and and go and reach out to the right people for the right job. You mentioned about struggling with confidence and criticism. And I remember actually when we recorded our first chat at Broadcasting House, that we both 
resonated a bit on this because you asked me why I'd never really kicked on as a fly off. And I said it was due to a, a lack of confidence. And, and you, you opened up a bit about that. And a lot of people talk about in terms of ADHD, rejection, sensitivity. I don't necessarily expect you to know the answer to this, but do you feel that you were extra sensitive and could they be related? Yeah, I am extra sensitive. Or I was. I still am a bit now. It depends the kind of people I'm sensitive to. So people I respect and my peers and doing something I love, I'd be sensitive. You know, if, if someone, a, a DJ... What about I'm, coaches and your dad? Yeah, I would be sensitive to them because it's around a sport that I love that I was trying to be good at. I respected their opinion. I wanted their approval. That's fine. But DJ is a good example. Other DJs criticise me. That that hit me hard. People online, it still gets me. But I also don't care because I don't in my interest in what they've got to say. But it's still you're still pre-programmed. That's why I, when I was younger, I only ever wanted to, to uh, be in the SAS or drive a digger. And I don't think I'd ever have made the SAS because I don't think I had the mental fortitude because of my sensitivity. I've probably made up for that now with sort of over aggression and you know obviously working on it all the time. But I, I'd say for me that that's a pretty pretty big factor. Like you know, but I still I still you know at night again I'm still much more sensitive than perhaps I I, I give on you know. Sure. No, I understand that. A trend that's clearly been a big theme for you is like constant reappraisal, constantly reflecting, constantly updating systems and strategies and plans to keep improving and and to, for example, manage your ADHD as well. I've heard you talk, for example, about I know that you you've spoken about breaking your work into chunks. So you'll do, you know, emails in a block then you'll do social media in a block rather than sort of bouncing from one thing to another. So you've, you've learned a lot of strategies that have put in, you've put in place that have helped you to really hit the heights, for example, in rugby and in your career since then. You've really put all these things in place. And I think a lot of people can learn from that, can't they? Yeah. So, so the, ha- the habits is an interesting one. It's habits is because I'm easily distracted um, and there are a million ways to, to distract you now. So, you know, I'm sitting talking to you here i've got a massive screen behind you i've got my calendar i've got my emails but you know if i did my emails i just focus on my emails and i go through it methodically one after another another go and do all the bits and pieces and don't pick up my phone so i try to focus on that once the emails are done i go right what what have i got to post on social media today and and i'll do that i always have this fear of of not making the most of my time utilizing it very well so if i where was i so yeah so on the on the weekend i dj'd in uh uh, where the hell did I DJ? A uh, Swansea. So on Saturday, I DJ on Swansea. On the car on the way there, my tour manager drove me. I put my headphones on and I wrote. I just sat in the car and I can touch type and I wrote my speech. Did the DJ set next morning, came back, did it. Because I hate wasting time. And if I, the only time I will ever try to relax when there's, because I always think, is there better things I can be doing with my time? So if I, I used to, I love, I like video gaming. I haven't done it for ages because if I sit down to video game, I'm pretty certain I could be getting better as a DJ. I could be doing emails. I could be recording content for social media. So there's no time for gaming. The only time I would ever give in to things like uh, just watching stuff is if I've come on from a long day and I've done a speech and I've done all I've done for the day. I get in the back of the car. I just put on Netflix or Disney or whatever, and I'll watch something and I put, and that's how I unwind. Or if I'm eating food, I will eat and I will watch something, and that's and that's how I relax. But most of the time, I think, could I be getting better? Could I be doing things? Um, and I have moments of kind of jealousy, of like doubt. I want. To, I'm not DJing where I want to be. I'm not, my body isn't where I want it to be. I'm not. I'm not being successful. I can be. I'm not being as wealthy as I can be. And when I look at the analysis, I'm like, right, are you doing everything you can do to help that? And more often than not, the answer is no. And I know exactly what to do. So I stop feeling sorry for myself because it's my fault. 
I'm not where I want to be. And I just go and work on it. And, I, and, I, and then I, I will chunk, I'll go, right, so for the next hour, I'm going to be doing something constructive on DJing. I will download a DJ course. I will yeah, sure, sure. reorganize it, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, it's interesting because obviously, so you love to be busy, you love to appraise. And I know that, for example, since retiring, you spoke <laughs> about struggling with monotony and of doing one thing. So doing nothing, do you really struggle with that? Yeah, I do. I do struggle to do nothing. I'd also, I also, I notice, again, with that kind of self-appraisal, I, I reach my phone all the time. And so you're it's a like, distraction thing. Yeah, well, just to do something. And I'm just like, Matt, what happened before that? Do you know I mean, what did we do? We just used to sit and talk and reflect. So I would struggle to do, to do nothing, really, because my hands, it's become, you know, like Pavlov's or Pavlovian thing. You know, you, you sit, you get bored, you pick your phone up. You sc- and I scroll, I scroll on a cycle, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Daily Mail app, Sky News, BBC, uh, emails, and WhatsApp on a loop. That's all I do, round and round and round and round and round. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? So I think I, I, I do struggle with that. Um, I actually enjoy conversation and, and, and talking. Um, I hate- do, you think, do you think that habit is could exacerbate or – because obviously it's not ideal. So many of us are like that, right? I don't think that's unusual at all. but that's not great i imagine for people with adhd Sorry, or I'm, even people who don't I'm have ADHD. no it's not it's not good with it it's not good with um adhd at all because it, it the most my biggest thing with adhd is i couldn't concentrate i couldn't sit and apply myself uh, you know in class i couldn't sit still i couldn't you know uh focus on the subject matter i you know disorganized timelines um delivering things you know awareness of what was going on i that's so sitting and scrolling and easily being distracted is a nightmare oh, but i would say ultimately yeah i i the, the the phones and stuff is a massive distraction and actually looking at phone time looking at you know even putting your phone in a, in a box or putting it in the other room to sit down and do what you need to do is so important how do you think if you had to summarize adhd helped you hit the heights in sport uh i tell you what it, it well it gave me well i think I, I developed through failure as i said at the start and through a desire and maybe those insecurities and maybe that kind of um, wanting to prove myself made me um, dedicated and more focused than anybody else. I think the ability to, um, you know, like I said, be do multiple things and be open to, to doing those things, I think really, really helped. Um, I think my capacity to retain, you know, information um and also trying to work on it so learning the tools you know because i i used to struggle to remember moves and bits and pieces so i then was like well, well it's obviously i'm not receiving the information right because i can remember i can read books and, and and you know my memory's fantastic but i couldn't remember things so i was like i'm obviously not learning them how i want to be i'm also not digesting it so as soon as i started doing it even i wrote things out you know if i write a speech i'll write the whole thing out and then I'll know, and then it sticks in my head. You know, if I write stuff down, that's how I retain the information. So I started ch- changing what I was doing, and all of that kind of helps me, you know, do sort of really some really good things. Um, so understanding how your brain worked, then having had that diagnosis, yeah. rather than putting it up to like, oh, this is like a character flaw, or or I'm a bit stupid or anything like that. You're like, no, this is down to the way my brain works. Therefore, I've got to find a way to make it work for me that, to get to where 100%, I want to go. Because because you know. I remember, I mean, my physio, um, guy called Kevin Lidlow, talk, talks about, um, I think, Sean Edwards. I think I, I end up seeing Kevin, physio, he's one of the best physios in the world, one of the nicest men ever, um, really, a really important guy in my, in my life. And he 
I went and saw him by mistake at 16. I was supposed to go into see a podiatrist and I'd been up booking in to see him by mistake. I knew who he was, but I, I don't think I would have ever got in to see him. Anyway, I, I saw him and, you know, he obviously took, he thought this guy's a bit of an idiot. Where, you know, where's he going? Got to see him. And I remember that Sean Edwards came in to see him once and they were talking and my name came up and they were like, yeah, we love, you know, we love James, but we just, we just don't feel like he he concentrates or we know how to get the best out of him or what, what he what, what's doing. And Kevin, who'd obviously spent some time, was like, listen, no, you, this is how you need to explain it to him. This is what you need to do. And he'll remember and listen. And Sean, and Sean, to be fair, did that and started to, you know, and I, I was then, I then asked coaches moving forward, this is how I want to learn. And, and I think with some of the England coaches, because they weren't au fait with mental health or they weren't open-minded or weren't prepared, they saw it as me having a deficiency as, as an issue. And they then treated me as if I was some sort of, well, special needs instead of going, okay, this is the only player in the squad who's asked us to help. You know, and they, they you know, they think, say things like, oh, you're overthinking it. You're being sensitive. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not oversensitive. Just tell me how I want to tell me. Do it like this way and, we, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll work at it. And so I think it's very important to depend some, spend some time on self-analysis, how you want to learn, how you think, how your brain actually works and working with someone to get that. And you need self-awareness. You know, you can't, you know, you can't possibly be told um, the way you are if you don't believe it and don't have any. And you, you've got to go for the right people. You know, if you if you go to, on social media to find out what you're actually like, because people don't know you, you need to canvas the right people. You need to do a yeah, number of therapy yeah. sessions. You need to be honest with yourself to get that information. So, again, that comes back to having that diagnosis then that you got at such an early age when, as you say, it was not a common thing that actually served you well, although a lot of people didn't necessarily understand it. Like it did equip you to understand how you worked and what you needed, which comes back to then the importance of getting a proper diagnosis. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. So uh, because it was, so, I mean, when I, when I say, because it was so rare, I, have, I had never heard of anybody else I knew had ADHD. I, I mean, maybe in the, you know, in the, in, so I was, what's that, nine years old, from nine till 28, two people, if that. Ne ne it was never talked about in common conversation. It was never listed. It was never spoken about. I'd never seen anyone come out with, come out with it. I think it was a perfect storm. And we getting that diagnosis, being put on Ritalism, being you know, in full-time education, and then seeing a psychologist at 17. And finding and all, a sport you loved. And finding a sport I loved is a vehicle for success. Like I didn't, you know, I never, truthfully, I never, I loved rugby, but not like you, like some of these kids do. I, it was a vehicle for success for me. Uh, now I look back at it because I don't give a shit about it now, but being brutally honest with you, I don't really watch it because again, the selfish mentality is I could spend an hour watching a DJ set of a DJ that I want to learn from, or I could watch rugby. I've squeezed all the juice out of rugby. Rugby's just a, a, a hobby. I'd rather watch an action movie than watch rugby. So I, I, I put I buried that because it doesn't serve me any purpose. I know it sounds really a bit like an app, like a, you're a cyborg, but it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that for me. So fans get really confused, like, "Well, you're watching the big game." I'm like, "No, you know, you know, who's you know, England are playing." I'm like, "Are they?" So I do it obviously to try to be better at good bad rugby if required. But if I'm not required to talk, comment, I just won't watch it. Like I, I'd actually go and rather watch NRL um, than rugby league than watch um, the Union at the moment. But most of the time, if it doesn't serve me a purpose, it doesn't make me money, it doesn't make me better at what I want to do. I just don't. I just don't do it. And I think the perfect storm for me was getting that diagnosis because obviously there was some merit in what was going on. But but it also was such a rare rare thing. I don't think I had any frame of reference, so I didn't really think about it. I just took the medication, and got on with it. But then when the self-work came on, on at 17 with a sports psychologist, 
it probably shaped everything I, I do because um, it doesn't define me. It's not a vehicle for my success. It, it's played a role, but it's part of a melting pot of other bits and pieces. And I found something to anchor my stuff to, which was sport. And that's why I think kids getting out exercising or adults getting out and doing something. It doesn't have to be professional sport. You don't have to have a six pack. You're doing something with your body and with your mind, whether it's team as an individual, can help manage what's going through your head. We're not meant to be sedentary. We are not meant to be trapped inside. We're not meant to be working at home. We're not. We're meant to be active, getting up and doing stuff. And we're meant to be tested and we're meant to be emotionally tested. We're meant to be frustrated. We're meant to be happy. We're meant to be sad. You're just meant to have all this stuff. And I think if you can be a bit more robust and understand that life's probably a bit up and down and it, whatever you've got, manage it, get the tools to, to look after it and, and see it as a vehicle to move forward, that's fine, but don't be defined by it. My recipe for success was always continually wanting to be better, right? Always wanting to be better, being completely dissatisfied with everything. So that was my recipe for success that took me 77 times to England, played around the world, played for the Lions, did whatever I did, made the best of the limited ability I had because I did have limited ability, but I was prepared to work harder and smarter and do stuff that other people weren't prepared to do to get where I wanted to be. And I made the most of a pretty average ability, let's be honest. But when I retired, I was continually dissatisfied with everything else because I hadn't addressed my recipe for success because your recipe for success could be to your undoing. So what I did do is I constantly strive to be better, but I start celebrating the wins. I start celebrating anything. So the first time that my house track got played on Kiss, did that mean it was number one in the world? No. Did it mean I got a million dollar record deal? No. I bought a bottle of champagne. I celebrated it. If if you start today to make a profound difference and say you got your ADHD diagnosis, you go and see a therapist, that is a win because you are doing more than somebody else. So you are less average than you were yesterday. You go and see the therapist and they give you a couple of tools and you do the tools the next day. You are better than you were day, better than the day you were yesterday and the day before that. And suddenly you're 2% better. And that is how you go on about it. And it's all relative. Yeah, I totally understand. So we've spoken about how you've really noticed the number of people talking about ADHD, perhaps off like things like TikTok or that kind of thing. But also we've talked about how much benefit you got from your diagnosis. So what would you suggest then for people, perhaps, you know, parents or young people who suspect they may have it? How valuable do you think important it is to, to get that diagnosis? And what's your advice? So the, the, the first thing to think about is if, they, if you do take your kid and they've got it, what does that mean? What, what does that change? Well, it, it doesn't make anything go away. It doesn't fix anything. It's like, what, what are we going to do now to move on from that? And, and how are you going to put a plan in place? Because a lot of people look for the diagnosis and that's the start of the journey as we talked about as opposed to the end of it. I would say, do your research. Be very wary of Google diagnosis. Go find somebody that is reputable. Go and see them, get a proper diagnosis and get a plan in place and understand that this is just the start and what it's going to take to, to, to do that. Um, and that the diagnosis actually just reaffirms there is an issue but how you manage the issue. And I, I think that's very important. I would not operate under the belief that you've got something if you haven't got it. You know, and also with things like parents, genuinely, a kid can, is quite malleable and can, and can learn and you can put time in. But as an adult, you know, having a kid that's got ADHD can be very stressful. What are you doing to manage yourself? And I'd go and get some therapy. I'd go and sit down separately or a couple and sit down and go, this kid has driven us up the, up the wall. What do we do and manage it and, and start the journey yourselves with them and, and understand how can you be better for them and then how you can manage it because it's not all going to be plain sailing. You know, I I get things wrong all the time. I mess up all the time. I can give you amazingly sage advice on this podcast. I can walk straight out of this room and 
mess something up with my own relationship or do something or not take my own advice. That's human nature. So I think you've got to understand that, you know, if you're in a close proximity of someone with ADHD or any sort of neurodiversity or whatever the word is now, you have to work on yourself because it can take its toll and you also need to be better and manage it. Like I said about how to communicate with them, spend some time learning how they want to be talked to because otherwise the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. Just because you know the kids got ADHD, if you don't abruptly change how you're dealing with it, how your kid, the kid's not going to be any better because you've been doing the same thing and it hasn't worked now. The kid's working on themselves. What are you working on? James Haskell, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I hope to see you again soon. Thanks, mate. Dr. Wiley, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening to that interview with James Haskell. A couple of things spring to mind for me. First of all, his early diagnosis. He says that he couldn't sit still as a child. And yet when he was diagnosed, they completely missed that. I was wondering how common something like that is and what the implications are for, for example, objective testing. Well, it, it's quite common actually. And hyperactivity, there's a stigma to hyperactivity. It, let's start it as bad behavior when the true understanding of hyperactivity of ADHD is not that it's necessarily disruptive, it's more neurological. And objective testing quantifies that and, and allows us to compare motion of eight-year-old boys to each other. And so I think that more often than not, there's combined type, um, and especially in boys. Because it did seem clear to me that that was something that James, should we say, exhibited. He identified multiple times over the course of the 30 minute that this was a problem for him. Clearly, he had the symptoms of the hyperactivity, but it was just overlooked. And that's probably because when he was in the exam room or in the consultation room with the examiner, he was reined in one-on-one with the person doing the testing, and they didn't notice as much as they would have been uh, seen in a classroom setting. How do you think that sport can help people with ADHD? Because in James's case, it clearly gave him a, a focus, possibly a consistent dopamine boost. And yeah, I'm just interested how you think that that can help people who do have it. Well, we know that exercise is good for mental health in general and focus in particular. But sport is more than that, isn't it? I mean, it, it teaches discipline and camaraderie and getting along with others and listening to instructions. And especially if a young person has trouble in an academic environment, it gives them a different environment to succeed. And so um, I think all of those things can help boost confidence, help boosting dopamine for, for success. Um, some of the most elite athletes in the world, I think of um, Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer, and Simone Biles from here in the States, the both highly acclaimed Olympians, uh, both have, um, have disclosed that they have ADHD. So it's common in, in athletes. Can it be of real help then, do you think, to get to the top in elite sport? Well, I think when you have someone like James, who I immediately identified with him, because if you know people with ADHD, we all have things in common, no two of us are alike. But I really identified with him that sort of, you're not going to tell me I can't do it part. So that's the way I got through medical school with untreated ADHD. Some people would try to tell me I couldn't be a doctor, shouldn't try to be a doctor. And I'd be like, well, you know. And there is a group of us with ADHD that take that negative feedback and use it as fuel, I think was his to quote him. And so that is the, dare I say, stubborn of us with ADHD. A lot of, a lot of patients with ADHD 
find that the frustration and the running into those barriers is overwhelming for them. So it's really, I think, almost a personality type. I'm interested to what degree that might be linked to people talk about rejection sensitive dysphoria. And James spoke about being sensitive. You know, how much of a driver do you think that sensitivity can really be a driver for high performance, for high achievement? Rejection sensitive dysphoria, I really hate that term because it sounds like you could die from it. You know, I mean, it sounds so complex. It really is what James said. It's tend to be more sensitive. And when I get my feelings hurt, it makes me kind of depressed. But I, I think James's word of sensitive or do you get your feelings hurt easily? And then does that tend to make you feel not right about yourself? And young people and adults with ADHD identify with that. It's important to know that none of that is included in the diagnostic criteria. And among other re researchers and, and experts in the field, Russell Barkley um, has, has really been beating the drum that this has got to be added back to the diagnostic criteria and that we pay more attention to this. And I certainly find in my practice and in my personal life that it is a huge factor. And um, if you're the sort of person who takes rejection and shuts down, then uh, that's going to have one outcome. James, and I would, I think I would be the kind of person that would take that rejection. And instead of shutting down, we would double down uh, to make it happen. Right. Just in terms of managing that rejection, just briefly, that, those, that sensitivity, let's say, coping with the painful feelings. Do you have any words of wisdom for people who perhaps struggle in that area? Well, I think it's important to realize that it's part of the diagnosis. And, and so knowing that it's part of your medical condition is helpful. But I really love what James had to say, right? I mean, he, 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 these aren't his exact words, but basically compare yourself to yourself yesterday. Are you doing something about it? Are you trying to make it better? What tool are you going to use, right? I think that the first thing is awareness, um, that that's where all change begins. And then not having huge expectations that all of a sudden I'm not going to be as sensitive, but that I learn to manage it more on a day-to-day -day basis through that awareness. And his point about consciously making a habit, those were really good words. James obviously benefited a lot from sport. You've spoken already about the benefits of exercise. How can someone who's not an athlete really harness these? And particularly as well, for example, if you're immobile or injured and you can't go out and get a sweat up, how would you harness it in that instance? Exercise doesn't have to be sport. Exercise could be yoga. It could be running. It could be martial arts uh, as a common one. But there are folks like James, I would say, would be a person where it needed to be competitive because he needed that drive, right? So rugby, arguably the most competitive, right? I would also say meditation. Breathing and meditation can really be a helpful tool at achieving similar results. Something that James said that stuck with me was how he struggles to do nothing. He's always reaching for his phone. There's that inability to be still, which I would say is very common now, broadly speaking. Whenever I go to the train station, no one's just standing there waiting. Everyone's staring at their phone. But it can be even more of an issue with people with ADHD. Is that fair? It, it is absolutely fair. The non-diagnostic criteria that I always ask patients three questions. Do you get frustrated easily? Do you get bored easily? And do you get your feelings hurt easily? So those, those three things. And, you know, very often when I, when I'm seeing kids or, or young people today that I ask if they get bored easily and they look at me like they're confused a little bit, you know, um, I remember being bored, you know, really bored. But if you're bored, that your phone is a connection to so many cool and interesting things. I do, I do think that we tend to 
default to, uh, especially with an ADHD brain. And social media, of course, is designed to feed us what we like. Well, the thing that activates the, the network for focus is interest. And so you're wondering if, you, if you'd like to watch a movie or if you'd like to get on social media, you know, it may be at 40 minutes or 30 minutes into a movie that you decide to really enjoy in that. And that's a long time compared to swiping past a whole lot of stuff that you're not interested in on social media. In terms of, though, developing that ability to sit and do nothing, to, to be with your boredom, I imagine, or I'm pretty sure, there are real benefits to actually leaning into that rather than taking the easy option. So while the focus network is not connected, it leaves the default mode network running. And the default mode network is just a psychological term for, or neurological term for the daydream center. And I always say, you know, every day I take, take I have a, a, actually a Llewellyn setter. So she's a, a small English setter. And I take this bird dog to run around every afternoon. And I'm like, we all need time off the leash. It's one thing to walk a dog on a leash, but she, we have a green space down below our home where she can run. And I think our ADHD brains need that time off the leash. We're designed to be wanderers. We're designed to be think outside the box. And if we're constantly watching what everybody else is doing on social media, we're depriving ourselves of that time to be present with our thoughts. And the other thing is, it's very difficult um, for people in general to be in relationship with the amount of time we spend um, distracted by devices. Dr. Wiley, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to my chat with James and uh, much appreciated. I enjoyed it very much, both the listening to James and to the podcast that you all did. And I've enjoyed our time together, Simon. Thanks for including me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rethinking ADHD podcast. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. I'm at Simon Mundy on social media or head to the QB Tech website. Links are in the show notes. In the next episode, I'm speaking to Peter Shankman, the entrepreneur and best-selling author of Faster Than Normal and The Boy With The Faster Brain, written to help people with ADHD thrive as he has. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.